The forces of fascism are rising. Fascists seize control of the Congress on January 6th. The capitalist government, in spite of its immense power, seems paralyzed in the face of the threat. This weekend will be a new test. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's January 12th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ibarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Brian, we're going to talk today about the rising tide of fascism. And like I said in the introduction, there's going to be a new test this weekend. Yes, Nicole, we are in unprecedented times. It's extremely important for progressive people to understand exactly what's going on. I'm somewhat distressed that some well-meaning people on the left are minimizing uh, what happened on January 6th and what's likely to happen in the coming days and weeks, minimizing it, trying to uh, frame it as simply a struggle between different ruling class factions. That's uh, true. There is a struggle between ruling class factions, but the forces of fascism have been set into motion in this deliberate, planned, choreographed, orchestrated seizure of the Capitol building, which was partly an inside job. The Congress was temporarily dispersed in an effort to stop the certification vote for the transfer of power to a new administration. Uh, This is big, and the danger of fascism is real. And we're going to spend all week talking about it. Right. Not only today, of course, but um, tomorrow with our Capitalism and Crisis segment on Thursday with The Real Story. Um, But tomorrow as well, I just want to remind our listeners and supporters, um, we would would love to have as many people on our Patreon-only seminar that's tomorrow night, Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. All you need to do is subscribe on patreon.com slash the socialist program at $5 a month or more. We, of course, welcome people to subscribe at more than that, um, but it's really an equality of sacrifice. So whatever you can do to help us continue to bring you this content, we can do it with you, but not without you. And so we really encourage all of our supporters um, to join and to join us tomorrow at 7 p.m. Go to patreon.com slash the socialist program to see more information about how to join that seminar. Nicole, as we said in the beginning, this was uh, an orchestrated operation. This was a planned operation. Donald Trump held the Save America or March for Trump rally uh, starting at around noon uh, in front of the White House at the Ellipse, 16 blocks from the Capitol. It's a straight shot down Pennsylvania or Constitution Avenue uh, to the Capitol. Uh, the, the rally was designed so that it could end around, uh, well, just before the the vote, the certification vote in Congress was to take place. And Trump did it with the idea that his minions would march on the Capitol and try to stop the vote. Uh, They did just that. We're going to hear some audio clips where Trump and his allies like Rudy Giuliani are 
amping up the crowd. Uh, the Capitol was virtually unprotected. Now, remember, there are, I think, about 20 police agencies in Washington, D.C. There's the Capitol Police, 2,300 uh, strong force that their only job is to defend the Capitol building. There's the Metropolitan Police Department. There's the Secret Service. There's the National Park Police. There's the FBI. There's police departments associated with different government agencies. There's a lot of police in Washington, D.C., per capita, probably more than any other city in the country. And yet when they marched with a clear plan to seize the Capitol, and they did seize it, uh, that Capitol was unprotected. It's an inexplicable event unless it's explicable, unless it's explained by the fact that there was an operation at hand. The Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund uh, sort of fell on his sword. He took responsibility. At first, he resigned, but he is also making it quite clear, and we're going to talk about this with Esther and the rest of us, about how the Capitol Police were actually hamstrung. Their efforts to call for reinforcements stopped. Uh, this was an operation. We have to recognize it for what it was. Again, I'm sorry that some forces on the left minimize what happened. People should not minimize. The use of fascist, white supremacist mobs have an important place in American history. Remember, too, this is how Reconstruction ended. This is how the era of Jim Crow was enforced. The lynchings of black people uh, and others uh, throughout American history. The mob has played a very, very important role in American politics. And this is precisely what Donald Trump and Giuliani had in mind. Why did they call the rally at noon on a Wednesday in the middle of a work week? Well, it was because the vote was going to happen. Why did the Republican Attorney General's Association send out robocalls in states around the country telling people, come and march on Congress and stop the fraud? Why did, the, uh, did Trump and his allies actually tell the, the masses of their supporters, the 70 million people, 70 million plus Trump supporters, that election day wasn't November 3rd, but it was January 6th, and that if they came together and stopped the steal, if they stopped the certification, uh, Trump could uh, win the election? Why did Trump tell them, march on the Capitol, and I'll, I will meet you there? I mean, we have to put it all together. We will put it all together. Let's just start, though, with a, an audio clip. This is uh, Rudy Giuliani, Trump's lawyer, talking to the crowd right before they set sail uh, on the Capitol. But if we're right, a lot of them will go to jail. So let's have trial by combat. Yeah, let's have trial by combat. Now he's telling them, get ready. Now, again, they're led by Proud Boys. They're led by fascists. Uh, they're armed. They intend to seize the Capitol on uh, social media platforms, right-wing platforms like Parler and Gab. They've been talking all week about uh, seizing, uh, uh, breaching the Capitol. Let's hear a couple more audio clips from Donald Trump. Uh, he says, we no longer are playing by the same rules. He, he tells the crowd right before they march, if you catch someone in fraud, you're allowed to play by different rules. Let's listen to what he says. When you catch somebody in a fraud, you're allowed to go by very different rules. 
Yeah, so he's telling them, forget uh, the constitutional order, the rule of law, blah, 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 the things that are normally said. He says, we're going to fight. He says, when you march on the Capitol and I'll be with you, we're going to fight. We're going to fight like hell. What is he actually telling them? Is this not part of an operation? Let's listen. And we fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. So, yeah. If you want to save America, and that's the name of the march, you have to fight like hell. And again, uh, Esther, when they got to Congress, they fought like hell. Some of the police fought back. Uh, Some of the police, some of the individual police officers fought back. Uh, Some of the uh, black police officers, the Capitol Police, were actually very both brave and smart in terms of redirecting Uh, the fascist forces away from the Senate chamber at a moment when the Senate chamber wasn't wasn't properly defended. Eventually, all the Congress people, senators and House of Representatives members, they were they were sheltering in place. They were hiding as the rampage, the destruction of big parts of the building took place. Uh, We're going to talk about all of that. We're going to reconstruct it. But I want to say a word before we start uh, to do just that. Again, it's the position of this show that this is not and should not be treated as simply a normal faction fight between different ruling class factions, that there is, uh, in fact, the danger of fascism here. Trump is not ideologically a Nazi. He's not ideologically a fascist, but he's using the fascists and the fascists are using him. And fascism to succeed needs a leadership and historically a charismatic leader. Fascism's rise is an organic feature of capitalism's degeneration. Just let's remember what what we can take from history. By the end of 1940, and just a decade after the stock market crash of 1929 that inaugurated the Great Economic Depression, the Great Depression, which was global in character, Fascism and fascist parties dominated not only Germany and Italy, but almost every country in continental Europe. In the period before Hitler became chancellor, which was January 1933, Germany was considered the most progressive country in Europe. People think now, oh, Germany, right wing, prone towards fascism. No, Germany had a huge socialist party. It had a huge communist party, a big, vibrant, robust trade union movement. It had the most advanced women's rights movement for its time. And it was the first pioneering movement in history for what decades later became the global gay rights struggle. Yet Germany succumbed to Nazism and all of those movements were destroyed. Fascism must be actively fought by a united front of those forces in society who will be destroyed if it is victorious. The origins of fascism are, in fact, the capitalist system. And the final dissolution of fascism ultimately lies in the victory of socialism. Yes, but in the meantime, there must be a united front against the fascist threat. And Esther, as you help us reconstruct events, I just want to say what I said before. The racist mob, the fascist mob, the white supremacist mob, which, by the way, the German Nazis 
uh, use the American racial system, the apartheid system, as a premise for the development of their own master race theories and philosophies. The germ of American fascism lies precisely in this kind of activity. What we saw on uh, January 6th is not something new in America. It's something reminiscent of something that existed for a long time. In fact, since the origin of what became the United States of America. Right, Brian. So I'm, I'm sticking with this being just the latest step in a rolling coup attempt that the Trump administration or that Trump has been foreshadowing for months as he pronounced the November presidential election flaw before it even occurred. And so we all remember that he worked to cripple the post office for early voting while at the same time denouncing mail-in ballots in the middle of a pandemic crisis that he extended by his own actions and then after the election, two rallies were held here in D.C. by MAGA, his supporters, and these far-right groups like Stop the Steal and the Proud Boys. And those these events turned violent at night with right-wing extremists roaming D.C., assaulting and stabbing people and burning and uh, destroying Black Lives Matter signs wherever they could see them. And that, that's including at historic Black churches. So on December 31st, uh, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser requested that the D.C. National Guard be readied to assist MPD with traffic control and at metro stations in the district. And because of the media coverage in, in, on January 6th, that she requested their assistance on January 6th. But because of media coverage, lots of people don't know that D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department is not responsible for the U.S. Capitol or federal property. And so the district was not told that they were needed at the Capitol until after the rioters arrived there. So if we want to think about January 6th, I think we have to remember the things we talked about last week. Um, you know, Trump's actions... Uh, four days before the push at the Capitol, Trump called Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and asked him to find 11,000 votes to overturn the election in that state in his favor. And then he threatened Raffensperger about what could happen to him if he did not overturn the election that Trump repeatedly and then falsely claimed that he had won. And that phone performance was followed up Monday, January 4th, with a speech by Trump as he campaigned in Georgia for Republican Senate candidates Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue. And before that crowd, Trump said there's no way that they, meaning the Democrats, are, are taking over the White House. And so also over the weekend, Stephen's son, the former head of the Capitol Hill Police, recently resigned, asked House and Senate security officers for permission to request that the D.C. National Guard be placed on standby, and he was turned down. Both the House and Senate have a sergeant-at-arms, and the House sergeant-at-arms, Paul Irving, said he wasn't comfortable with the optics of formally declaring an emergency ahead of the protest. The Senate sergeant-at-arms, Michael Stenger, suggested that Sun should just informally seek out his guard contacts, asking them to, quote-unquote, lean forward and be on alert when Sun called them. So Sun called the General Major Williams Walker, head of the 1,000-member D.C. National Guard, to tell him that he might call on him for help. You know, if we can get you leaning forward, Sun said, how long do you think that it would take us to get assistance? And Walker said he thought that he could send 125 personnel fairly quickly. And so this is all from a the first in-depth interview I saw with Stephen's son in the Washington Post um, this weekend. And then 
uh, in the interview, Sun also confirms that he conferred with D.C. Police Chief Robert Conti, who also offered to lend a hand if trouble arose. So by the time we get to Wednesday, it's clear that Trump's Monday speech in Georgia was just a precursor to one that he would give on January 6th. After it, after it was clear that the Democratic senatorial candidates, Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, were all but a short victory in Georgia. And as you mentioned earlier, at the ellipse near the White House, speaker after speaker, including Don Jr. and Rudy Giuliani, whipped up the crowd. Uh, and Giuliani in particular, as you mentioned, went all Game of Thrones and exhorted the crowd to hold a trial by combat. And then Trump also stayed in with the theme of battle in his combats. And then he urged the crowd to march to the Capitol. Uh, and then all the events ensued that we saw unfold on TV uh, that day. Yeah. Esther, we've got a clip of Donald Trump um, at that at that rally exhorting people to march with him to the Capitol. I'm, I'm going to um, play that so people can hear. And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down... We're going to walk down, anyone you want, but I think right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. You know what, uh, Nicole, the Trump, Trump said, you know, Trump had also denounced Mike Pence. And when the crowd got to the Capitol, when they broke through the police lines, the poorly defended police lines, they were hunting for Pence. They wanted to kill Pence. If they had found Pence or Mitch McConnell or Nancy Pelosi in the in the seat of government, they would have killed them. I mean, we have an audio clip from them uh, ex explaining exactly what their plan was. Hang Mike Pence, uh, a remarkable event. And and I want to ask all of you, I, I mean, this was an inside job. You had, after the, after the Capitol was breached, Stephen, Stephen Sund, who was the commander of the Capitol Police, calls the Department of Defense and talks also to the Secretary of the Army. This is like just minutes after his uh, officers have been overrun. Police officers are being beaten. One of them's beaten to death. He calls the Department of Defense. He said, we need reinforcements. I urgently request reinforcements. The situation is dire. And it takes the Department of Defense three hours, three hours. It wasn't until 545 that approval is granted so that troops could start to arrive at the Capitol after the whole thing is basically over. So they then are on a rampage. The the fascist forces are on a rampage. They're hunting to kill Mike Pence. Again, you can't explain how the Department of Defense did not respond. This is, in fact, the seat of government. But guess what? As, as Esther mentioned, Paul Irving, who was the sergeant at arms of the House and who resigned, he's, he has disappeared. 
he not only was not only did he resign, but when the when the people when the police or media went to interview him at the Watergate Hotel where he was living, neighbors said he moved out. They checked his property in Nevada. He moved out. I mean, what's with the sergeant of arms of the House of Representatives uh, fleeing under these circumstances? I mean, it's so clear that this was a highly organized event. The thing that the thing that went wrong for the for the fascist mob is that Trump said, we're going to show I'm going to be there with you. They thought Trump was going to come in while they were seizing the halls of Congress and that they were going to anoint Trump to be the leader, that they were going to stop the vote. That's what they expected. But Trump was instead watching it on TV. He was liking what he was seeing as this terrorist attack on the seat of government took place. He started calling members of the U.S. Congress, including members of the U.S. Senate, telling them, how do we find a way to stop the vote? While they're, while they're cowering, while they're sheltering in place, Trump is calling them. And then when the thing uh, de- devolves into chaos and bedlam, Trump got cold feet. He didn't show up as the fascist mob thought he was going to. Instead, he released a videotape where he said, I love you. I love you. This was around four o'clock. On TV, I love you, but you have to go home now. Trump got cold feet, uh, but but up until that moment, everything was going according to plan. Yes, Brian, and so the same chronology where a, a son is able to kind of give his his narrative about what happened that day really paints a very disturbing picture about a meeting that was held among several officials. Uh, Capitol Police, D.C. Police, uh, Pentagon officials, where the Pentagon officials are continuing continuing to delay and uh, not provide assistance urgently as if it's not an emergency. So he, he says that at 12.40 p.m., the first wave of protesters arrived at the Capitol. A uh, son called Conti, he, he is the chief of the D.C. Police, who sent 100 officers to the scene with some arriving within 10 minutes. And these are some of the officers that you see actually on the front lines in the yellow jackets and the bike helmets that you see actually trying to really restrain the crowd. Um, uh, Several of them were beaten. There was video of one um, DC police officer viciously beaten, um, pulled down by his helmet and uh, stomped and and hit with American flagpoles. Um, By 1.05 p.m., the defense secretary, Christopher Miller, was informed Trump's supporters were moving to the Capitol, according to DOD. Um, This is is well after they've arrived. 1.09 p.m., Sun said he called Irving and Stenger, those sergeant-at-arms, telling them it was time to call in the guard. He wanted an emergency declaration, and both men said that they would run it up the chain and get back to him. And by 1.26, Capitol Police ordered the evacuation of the building, according to the Department of Defense. 1.34 p.m., Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy's office spoke with Bowser, who requested additional forces. One between 110 and 145 p.m., Sun said he called Irving twice more and Stenger once to check on their progress. And then five minutes later, he Sun called the head of the National Guard, Walker, to tell him to get ready to bring the guard. So 10 minutes later, the Capitol was breached. 
So just over an hour after these people arrived, they've they've gotten into the building and plainclothes Capitol Police agents were barricading the door to the speaker's lobby just off the House chamber to keep the marauders from charging in. Um, and at this point, you know, as those of us who have participated in rallies, marches, demonstrations, peaceful demonstrations, we have to stop and see that at this point, none of the tactics used against us uh, during Black Lives Matter protests this week, this year, uh, certainly on June 1st, when when Trump called out all types of federal officials to counter peaceful protesters, none of these uh, tactics were used at this point. There was no tall fencing like was put, you know, all around the White House for much of this year. Uh, there was no tear gas, which w- would have quickly dispersed crowds as they really kind of slowly made their way up the steps uh, to the Capitol and then up the steps to the actual building. There was no pepper, no mass amount of pepper spray used. There were no rubber bullets. There were no flashbang grenades. Um, the federal officials arrived in civilian cars as opposed to these kind of what I call MRAP vehicles that look like, you know, they're not tanks, but they look like, you know, war vehicles. Um, there were no helicopters uh, trying to disperse the crowd. So, you know, we, we see that at this point outside before the protesters have even gotten inside, there was not the type of federal response uh, to these protesters that we've seen all year. And that uh, people on the left, people, um, um, protesting for peace have seen not only this year, but for decades. Nicole, I want to, I want to turn to you. I mean, Esther's points are so, so well taken on, uh, on June 1st, when the, when the police wanted to move you as a, as someone who was present for, uh, peaceful demonstrations on June 1st outside the white house, they, open fire. They shot you with stinger grenades. They hit people with rubber bullets. They used tear gas, pepper spray. We were all being routinely tear gassed back then. Uh, Peaceful. I mean, crowds that were not threatening anybody, but the cops were just lobbing tear gas and tear gas really has an impact. It really disperses you. And I I can tell the audience on September 15th, 2007, uh, in my position as an organizer with the Answer Coalition, we led a demonstration of 100,000 people, same march route from the White House to the Capitol, led by Iraq anti-war veterans to deliver a letter to Congress saying, don't authorize the surge of another 100,000 troops to Iraq. Uh, hundreds of us were arrested. We were pepper sprayed. We were taken to trial. Uh, the police were you know, in full riot gear. So the police have all of this response. So one the government allowed this to happen or parts of the government Two, the, the fascist mob dispersed members of Congress who had to hide and they were fearing for their lives. Five people died. If you count the Capitol police officer who committed suicide later, that's six dead. Uh, one of the dead is a, a Capitol police officer who was beaten to death. Uh, other police officers from Met- Metropolitan police beaten. And so here we are. And, and now we have, uh, the fascists saying they're going to come and have armed demonstrations at all at the state capitals of all 50 states. Uh, Donald Trump is said he's sorry. He he sort of said he would allow a peaceful transfer of power the next day after January 6th. And the response from this government is so weak. I mean, I think this is something we have to really think about. There's a kind of paralysis within 
the government. The government spends a trillion dollars a year almost on military goods, military hardware. It has the biggest war machine in the world, but it can't defend the U.S. Capitol. And then when the president of the United States engages in what is obviously a seditious conspiracy, meaning violating existing law, Joe Biden comes out and says it's a fragile democracy and we should pa pass a new anti-domestic terrorism law, which you absolutely don't need. That only strengthens the hand of the state. The existing seditious conspiracy law is enough to convict, convict Trump. But instead of going forward with the conviction of Trump or making it clear that as of 12.01 p.m. January 21st, when he loses presidential immunity, he's going to be charged with seditious conspiracy. Instead, the response has been so weak. His only real significant punishment so, so far is he lost his Twitter account. So if you engage in a seditious conspiracy, uh, unseat the, 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 capital, the, 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 the Congress while it's sitting and engaging in the legal transfer of power and people are killed, including police officers, your main penalty is you lose your Twitter account. I mean, it's, it's an amazing display of weakness. And it's very, very telling. It's absolutely weakness. The response politically has been, well, we'll just impeach him again. Well, impeaching him, he's already been impeached, first of all. And second of all, he's, you know, days away from leaving office. So, you know, this is an incredibly weak response when this is someone who, with his incredible amounts of power, because he is the president of the United States, has incited a riot and incited sedition. Uh, right. And his, and the response is, yeah, we'll impeach him and we'll see how that goes and and we'll take away his Twitter account. It's so, so weak. Uh, you know, there's business groups who have called for the 25th Amendment that that hasn't um, come to fruition. Uh, there's reports now that Pence and Trump have been meeting and are, you know, back, you know, speaking on speaking terms and, and oh, having. Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. So it was kind of like, I'm sorry I incited the fascist mob who wanted to kill you. But hey, let's sorry get together and that. have coffee. Yeah, but but yeah, but we're fine now, right? I mean, everything's cool, great. Um, exactly. There, but there's been no arrests for sedition. The arrests we've seen are things like breaking and entering, some of these, you know, like possessing federal property. These are arrests, but they're not arrests for what happened. No one from the political class or within the command structure of the police or the military has been officially implicated when it's very clear that that was a part of what happened or possibly the cause of how things were so significant. No operation has been announced against the far-right militias. I don't know if y'all remember this summer, but um, Attorney General William Barr came out and said, we are going to start grand jury investigations into quote-unquote Antifa. Well, Antifa is just groups of anti-fascists who are trying to prevent this kind of thing from happening. Uh, there's not any need to have any sort of federal operation. But when it comes to these far-right militias that have been organizing and clearly strengthening over the years uh, and are clearly strong enough to have a this, you know, coup attempt. No, no operation against them. Um, and I just want to emphasize how, because I, I think you're right, Brian, that there's a lot of people who aren't really looking at just how serious this was. But there's a few things that I think really are just, you know, really illustrate it for me. Um, these The rioters brought bear mace. Bear mace is multiple times more powerful um, than pepper spray. They brought handmade napalm. They brought guns. They brought Molotov cocktails. They were beating down Speaker Pelosi's door with staff hiding, cowering under the tables, hoping that these rioters didn't get through the barricades while uh, the rioters were yelling, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? The same group of people yelling, hang Mike Pence. I don't know what they would have done if they'd gotten through, but I can guess. 
Um, there were police, these Capitol Police leading these rioters to offices. Uh, you know, the we've seen reports of how difficult it is to get around the Capitol building and up in these unmarked third floor offices, personal offices, not public offices of like Jim Clyburn, for example, very difficult to find even for people who work there every day. But somehow within minutes, the rioters were able to get up to these offices. The mob also stole, like rifled through documents in Pelosi's office and stole computers there. They stole Jim Clyburn's computer as well. I mean, this is a serious, serious thing that happened. Yeah, Nicole, I just want to emphasize that seditious conspiracy exists as a law. The government doesn't need to pass new domestic anti-terrorism laws, which will be usually and mainly used against progressive forces. Uh, They're saying ideologically driven terrorist actions. No, seditious conspiracy exists. Now, just so our audience gets the big picture here about this law, uh, it says... If two or more persons in any state or territory or in any place subject to the jurisdiction of the United States conspire to, by force, to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the U.S. or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the U.S. contrary to the authority thereof, they shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. Now, Congress was in session to uh, carry out the execution of its lawful duty, which was to certify, as mandated by law, the electoral college results so that there would be the peaceful transfer of power to the incoming administration. So Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani and some of their friends in the department of defense and probably in police departments in the high command or the sergeant at arms at the house of representatives or the state attorney generals who send out, you know, robo calls telling people to come and save America on January 6th. They were involved in a seditious conspiracy. They could be arrested. The fact that the government is afraid to arrest them as of yet, maybe that will change. But the the fact that it's afraid to arrest them and only carry out impeachment is a sign of paralysis. It's a sign of weakness. Now, the reason I think this is very, very important is that when people uh, think about how fascism came to power in Germany, they think, one, Germany must have been a very right-wing country. As we said in the beginning, it was not. And in, in 1910, one-third of all the delegates in the in the Reichstag in the German Parliament were members of the Socialist Party. It was the biggest socialist movement in the world. Uh, that was still true in 1932, in the last election. The combined vote of the Socialists and Communists, the Socialist Party and the, and the Communist Party, was uh, 13 million or 12 and a half million. It was larger than the fascist vote in 1932, the last election. The combined vote of communists and socialists was bigger than Hitler's vote. And that was when Hitler was still on the rise. The reason Hitler became chancellor and then destroyed all of the left and the workers' organization and engaged in the genocide against Jewish people and Roma and other minority peoples and, and, and initiated World War II, the re- how that happened was that 
He was appointed chancellor by the existing right center uh, political parties. Hindenburg appointed him. The fascists did not seize power. And then the industrialists and the military high command in Germany thought, oh, wait, Hitler can do our bidding. He can get rid of the left. He can crush the left. And he's going to oppose the Versailles Treaty uh, stipulations and help Germany rearm, which we need to do to regain lost territory. So they made a deal with Hitler, thinking that they would tame Hitler. But in turn, Hitler tamed them. He allowed them to keep their property. But he imposed the fascist dictatorship such that within a year, German military office uh, uniforms had the Nazi insignia on them. So again, not a seizure of power, not like an open seizure of power, a deal, a compromise made by a paralyzed bourgeois government in a progressive country, a liberal country, a left-leaning country, Germany. That's how Hitler came to power. The reason I want to make this point is that right now, today, as we're recording this show, Donald Trump is ridiculing Congress. He's calling the impeachment just a big witch hunt. So it's going to actually help Trump because it's not a deterrent. Trump leaves office anyway, January 20th. Impeaching him after he leaves office is is political theater. If the government was serious, they would take down Trump, not by taking away simply his Twitter account, even though that deprives him of an important megaphone, but arrest him for that which he's guilty, that seditious conspiracy, along with his co-conspirators. Again, if the ruling class, the ruling class could do this. They're not doing it. They should do it if they want to protect their own system. But that also raises the question, how in, the, in light of these circumstances, does the, does the society free itself from the fascist menace? How, it, how can it be stopped? One of the things that I, I wanted to just say, just to kind of conclude about what happened on Wednesday, January 6th, is that, so these marauders at the Capitol, some of whom were spotted with zip ties that are used to like handcuffs to take people hostage. Uh, They were spotted with other types of weapons. They were allowed to just leave. They went back to their hotels, their cars, some got on planes and people were eating out at restaurants and celebrating. And what makes it so odd is that then the FBI put out a call for help in identifying these people when they were readily identifiable and available uh, to be kettled, to be sent to a designated area after leaving the Capitol, but they, they were just allowed to leave. And so it looked like to, for most of us, it looked like these, you know, it looked like peaceful demonstrators all year were treated like rioters. And then these rioters were treated like peaceful demonstrators. Oddly enough, the FBI put out a, bulletin asking the public for help in identifying them and, you know, perhaps, you know, giving information that would lead to their arrest. It was amazing since all these people were in the Capitol and they could have been kettled or whatever, because we know that peaceful demonstrators had been treated that way. And these were people who had actually committed a crime, who had actually at the very least trespassed and at the most, you know, they could have been involved in the the murder of the Capitol Police officer. So when you talk about dysfunction and weakness, I mean, it was shown that day and people have to wonder, you know, how could we spend $960 billion on so-called national defense and not be able to defend the Capitol? Good point. Good point. Walter, 
uh, let's let's just talk about what the situation is and what could be done or should be done. Yeah, well, I mean, extremely important points that everybody is making here. I mean, in, in any other country, what happens to coup plotters is that they go to prison. They go to prison. I mean, the, the legal technicalities don't matter in a situation like this. The state, the government's instinct for self-preservation kicks in, and the people who are attempting to overthrow it by force are arrested. And then the legal rationalization is uh, you know, determined after the fact, right? But the the primary thing is that the coup plotters are arrested, that there are consequences for their uh, attempt to organize an insurrection and overthrow the government. It's astonishing that that is not what's happening now. And as a consequence, these fascist forces are feeling very emboldened. Um, I think there is, you know, maybe a sense of panic that they might have felt after they uh, failed to seize the power on January 6th, but that quickly dissipated when it became clear that they were essentially uh, being let off the hook with the exception of maybe some of the people who are you know, photographed more prominently, but the true coup plotters are, were left off the hook. And so we now expect major right-wing fascistic mobilizations all across the country. Um, they're, they're expected to start in state capitals over the weekend on Saturday and Sunday. And then another mobilization, which could be very intense in Washington, D.C., is expected to begin as early as Sunday and then lead into the inauguration of Joe Biden, which is taking place on January 20th, uh, a week from tomorrow. So this is this is a very dangerous situation. It's become more dangerous because of the impunity. And so, so the natural question that's on a lot of people's minds is what can be done about it? If, if the political elite, if the Democratic Party, if the, you know, I mean, if the political establishment in general is not willing to take decisive action, what can the people, the progressive movement, the socialist movement, the working class generally do? Um, if we look through history, I mean, I think there are a few important tactics to keep in mind. Now, every tactic that we take from history needs to be creatively applied to the present circumstances. It, it can't be a mechanical one-for-one one thing like, okay, this worked at this point in history, and therefore, let's just do the exact same thing. But we can still learn some important generalizable lessons. One is that it's crucially important to deny fascism political oxygen. We have to crowd them out of the political arena. Uh, for instance, in uh, August of 2019, there were uh, a, a group of, of fascists, of neo-Nazis who are planning to rally in Washington, D.C. in order to uh, essentially celebrate the anniversary of the uh, terrorist attack in Charlottesville in 2017 that led to the, uh, that you know, involved the murder of Heather Heyer. Um, and, and what happened is that Tens of thousands of people organized by many different progressive organizations, including the Answer Coalition, came together in an enormous show of force and demonstrated to both the fascists and to the broader society just how isolated the far right is, just what a minuscule sliver of popular opinion the Nazis, the fascists, the Klan type forces represent. You can overwhelm them with numbers and deny them political oxygen. Uh, it's also extremely important to combat the, the divide and conquer ideology promoted by fascism. Uh, the, the goal of the fascists is to essentially take the heat off of the true 
perpetrators uh, of all of the great injustices of society, the political elite, the ruling class, the capitalist class, the people who are responsible for racist police terror, for economic decline, for mass unemployment, for starvation, for homelessness, for evictions. Um, Instead of blaming the people who are actually responsible for those problems, the fascists say, blame immigrants, blame black people. Blame leftists, blame the LGBTQ community. And so combating this insidious bigotry, this divide and conquer rhetoric through political education is extremely important as well. And and finally, you know, it's important to keep in mind that that people in this country have the legal right to self-defense. It's a legal right. You know, we're not talking about going out and committing acts of violence, but if the fascists come to your neighborhood, uh, you have a right to self-defense. So, so for instance, you know, we can look at how the Klan was beaten back in North Carolina and South Carolina in the 1950s. Um, is led by this, you know, a, again, you know, a charismatic fascistic leader, uh, James Catfish Cole. Uh, and there are two instances of self-defense that really humiliated that organization and led to their decline and eventual uh, dis- dispersal, if not dissolution. One was the community self-defense squads that were set up under the leadership of um, a very famous revolutionary, Robert F. Williams in Monroe, North Carolina, that pushed back the Klan who was, you know, the Klan squads that were marauding through black communities there. Uh, and then there's the Battle of Hayes Pond where uh, Lumbee Native Americans uh, humiliated, routed uh, a Klan death squad that essentially come to, to do a cross burning in their territory. Uh, so, so self-defense is also something that people have exercised their legal right to do in the face of fascist aggression. Indeed. I, I thank you, Walter, for helping us with some of that history. Uh, we have to be able to organize a mass movement against fascism, as you're saying. It should be a united front from all of those who will suffer if fascism uh, is successful. We also have to do it independent of the leadership of the Democratic Party establishment. The fact of the matter is that uh, during the past year, uh, both parties, both ruling class parties have failed the working class, the poor, the middle class in society. The fact that uh, 60 million people lost their jobs and their income, 40 million families facing eviction, 4,000 people a day dying now because of COVID, uh, where other countries, this didn't happen, uh, laying people off, losing their income, making them hungry. This was a policy choice by both a government, both ruling class parties and the fascists and the right wing and Trump, who is himself so responsible, demagogically tries to scapegoat others and blame others, Antifa or the black community or immigrants, as you're saying, in order to redirect people's anger. So if we're going to build a united front against fascism, it also has to be a united front against the two ruling class parties that, while different in their political orientation, are pursuing policies that make, as we said in the beginning, fascism and the rise of fascism, something organic, something uh, connected to the existing social and economic order, not an anomaly. So we have to build a united front. It has to be massive. We far outnumber the fascist forces. People are making the point that, you know, 73 million people voted for Trump and, you know, 45 percent of Trump supporters think that what happened on January 6th is good. But that also means that 55% of Trump supporters think that what happened uh, on January 6th is not good. And there's a lot of poor whites and poor working class folks who are being dragooned uh, because of racism into a movement that actually redirects 
uh, the struggle in a in a way that will not in any way, shape, or form help them, but indeed demonizes and targets and and endangers uh, oppressed and minority communities. We have to we have our work cut out for us. But first and foremost, we have to reject the idea that the Democratic Party and the capitalist government are doing the job to stop fascism. In fact, again, as we have said over and over and over again on this show, in the face of something unprecedented, the temporary seizure of Congress by a fascist mob using violent methods, uh, endangering the lives of people in Congress, killing other people, including Capitol Police officers. In the face of that, the fact that the instigator of this seditious conspiracy is so far punished only by losing a social media platform and not facing criminal charges along with his co-conspirators, it shows the profound weakness of the empire. Uh, around the world, American, the American empire looks to be, you know, hollowed out in a way. It's its sense of legitimacy and governance, the fact that it seemingly, it, it always promoted the idea that it had a durable, sturdy government, uh, that has gone up in smoke. But just because it's weakened the state of the U.S. empire doesn't mean that it's uh, a, a not dangerous situation. The German ruling class was weakened after World War I, but in fact, under fascism, uh, not only were tremendous losses taken by uh, the Jewish community, the workers' movement, the unions. Uh, but World War II happened, and, and 90 million people lost their lives in five years. Uh, again, everyone, the stakes when when we come to when we talk about fascism and it's real, the stakes here could not be higher. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.